If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter, we have been spending quite a bit of time in this chapter. It is one of the richest chapters in all of the New Testament. And this morning we are going to look at a center section of this chapter, verses 37 to 47. Before we read the text, I have a word of warning for you. As I was doing my preparations and coming uh, to the point of preparing this sermon, I realized that I had one of three options before me. One option was to preach a very long sermon. That would get me in trouble with my wife. A second option was to go quickly through this text and deal with it superficially. That would get me in trouble with God. My third option, which I have chosen, is to divide this into part one and part two. Because this is one of the richest texts that deals with the issue of salvation and divine sovereignty and human responsibility, God's election and man's faith. And so we're going to look, Lord willing, this morning at the first half of that equation. And then after an interlude next week on Christmas morning in Luke 2... And the new year coming through, we will come back to this text and complete our journey through it. But I'd like to read the whole of the text so that you have all of it in your mind as we begin to go through it. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we ask this morning that you would feed us from your word. 
that even as you have promised, even as you have told us that you are the bread of life, Lord, we cannot go a day without the blessing of your word. And so we ask this morning that you would fix our eyes on the Savior, that you would bind us together as your people in love, and that in all we do, we would seek your glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. It is the Christmas season, and a popular view of Christmas is that Christmas is a time of hope. It's a time when we are reminded to do better, to be kinder, and to think more of others. The baby Jesus stirs our emotions. We see that God made a grand gesture, and that makes us want to reach out to him. But Christmas is actually about the miraculous work of God that it took to save us from sin and ourselves. God became man not to give us an example of compassion and love, but to do what we could not do. Christmas shows us the gospel because it shows us that nothing can stop. God. Our text this morning is not a Christmas text, but it shows us the reason for Christmas. It shows that a sovereign God brings salvation to a people lost in sin. And it also shows that sinners are saved through faith in the Son. And that faith itself is a part of God's sovereign plan. None who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are lost because they are the Father's gift to the Son. And so this morning and in weeks to come, I'd like to divide our text before us into three main headings, only the first of which we will see this morning. First, we will look this morning at God's will. Jesus shows us God's will in this text. And then secondly, Jesus shows us man's belief. God's will and man's belief. And if you're wondering how we reconcile those two things together, Jesus shows us an important third thing, and that is God's provision. It is God's provision that unites God's will and man's belief. So let's start then this morning by looking at God's will under two subheadings. First, we're going to see how the Father gives a people. And then secondly, we will see how the Son keeps them. Let's begin then by looking at this important text. This is a very important text. There has been a long debate about salvation in the Bible. Who is responsible for salvation? If God is responsible, does that mean that people don't need to believe? If man must believe, does that mean that God is not in control? This passage here this morning teaches us the doctrines of grace, that the gospel will succeed because it depends on God. And the promises of God 
include salvation by faith alone. Now, I want you to remember how we got here. I keep bringing up the context because it's very important, especially this morning. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men plus women and children. It's a miracle that has never been seen before. And yet, the large crowd that gathered around Jesus to hear Him teach and were fed by Him has failed to believe in Him. Jesus informs us of that. If you look at verse 36, the verse right before our text, Jesus tells us the following. He says, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, this context is very important because the promise of the gospel success that Jesus is about to give us is in the context of a visible failure. And that's not your pastor's opinion. That's not a commentator's opinion. That's Jesus' statement. He says, yet you do not believe. You've seen me, but you don't believe. So that should remind us to trust in what God's word says. Not in our circumstances and what we think we see is successful or not. And so Jesus begins this passage with an all. Look with me at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now this is a significant promise designed to give us hope. We have seen earlier in this gospel, John tell us that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. The problem is that over and over again after that, we have seen people see Jesus and fail to believe. They want what Jesus can give. They fail to see their true need. They fail to see the salvation that he brings. And after all, isn't this our experience so often in the world? So many people reject the gospel. They don't believe that they're sinners. They don't think they need a Savior. And they certainly don't think Jesus is that Savior. On the most important issue of life, why do so many people fail to believe or even pay attention? And again, if we go back to our text, we can't blame our inability to share the gospel correctly or properly or winsomely because Jesus brought the gospel. And they didn't believe. So Jesus follows this thought of negativity with an all. All come to Jesus. But this is a particular kind of all. It doesn't mean each and every person in the world comes to Jesus. We know that because Jesus has just told us that there are people in the crowd who aren't coming to him. So what do we mean here? All doesn't mean everyone in every instance. Jesus has defined this all for us. So for example, if I told you that all the Astros fans watched the World Series this year, I wouldn't be saying to you that everyone on the face of the earth watched the World Series. There are plenty of people that don't even know baseball exists. As hard as that is to believe. 
across the whole world, they're not even sure what this baseball is. But if we're t talking about a specific group of people, that is Astros fans, we could say that all of them, each and every one of them, watched the World Series. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't say, all come to me. Read the text slowly and carefully. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So he's defining the all for us. The ones who come are the ones whom the Father has given. And this is an important distinction. It is those whom the Father has given that come, and every one of them will come. That's important to understand. Do you see God initiating here? You see, we must come to Jesus. We'll see more about that next time. But before we can come to Jesus, we must be given to Him by the Father. Now, Jesus is not saying that you don't have a choice to make. That you should not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is there's a choice before the choice. The Father has a choice before you have a choice. And this initiating choice, this most important choice, is the Father's choice. He has a people in mind. He chooses them and He gives them to Jesus. And all of them, every single one of them, come to Jesus. None are lost. Are you willing to let God be God? Because that's your real hope. The God of the Bible is not a weak being who is dependent on you to make all the right decisions or to have the ability to follow through on them. No, the true and living God is the sovereign king of the universe. Nothing stands in his way. His will is always done. And so as we think about the gift of the Father to the Son... It's appropriate at this Christmas time. At Christmas time, we think about the gift of Jesus to sinners. It's a great gift. And as wonderful as that gift is, it is not the real gift. The real gift is the Father's gift to the Son. Jesus is the primary recipient of the gift. Can you imagine that? How much must the Father love you to give you as a gift to the Son? If you have come to Jesus, it is because the Father has given you. You are a part of the all. Every single gift makes it to Jesus. And this is very important for us as we think about salvation, our faith, and our hope. It doesn't rest upon us and what we do. It rests upon the great triune God. One of my favorite theologians, you've heard me quote him before, J.C. Ryle. If you don't have all your Christmas gifts bought yet, buy someone a J.C. Ryle book. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. The Father from all eternity has given to the Son a people to be His own peculiar people. 
The saints are given to Christ by the Father as a flock, which Christ undertakes to save completely and to present complete at the last day. This is what we call the doctrine of election. Election is not scary. It is not heartless. It is that the Father chose a people as a gift to the Son. That He initiates salvation. And all whom He gives will come to the Savior. This is a gift to Christ. Our salvation, our election does not occur in a vacuum. It is not theoretical. It comes in the context of the love of the Father for the Son. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Do you see it in this great passage on election? In Christ, in Him, through Jesus Christ. Election is not a theory or an intellectual exercise. It is a surety that the Father, in His love for the Son and His love for the world, has given the Son a people to save and to keep for all eternity. Think of how safe that makes you. It doesn't depend at all on you. I'm so glad for that because I get tired and I forget and I make mistakes and I do wrong things. And I'm so glad that the only thing that I bring to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have worked out my salvation. You see, Jesus is saying that it doesn't ultimately depend on us to come to Him. You don't need to work up a sense in yourself to come to Jesus by yourself. You don't need to say, it's all on me, I feel this pressure, I need to go to Jesus. If you answer the call to come to Jesus, you need to know that the Father has already been at work in you. Jesus is teaching that you don't need to be a good person to come. You don't need skills to come. You don't need to prove yourself to come. Just come. When you come, you will then know that you are God's gift to Jesus. What a blessing it is to know that it is the Father's work that brings us to Jesus. And that that's a sure work. Notice that Jesus doesn't say most of whom the Father has given will come. He doesn't say all who are intelligent or who are American or who are emotionally stable whom the Father gives will come. No, it is an all. All is all here. There is no exception at all. Jesus also says 
that it doesn't depend on us to remain with him. And if we think about it, this is crucially important. Because if it's important to come to Jesus, it's even more important to remain with Jesus. Because it doesn't help us if we come to Jesus and then we leave Jesus. We have to stay with Jesus. We have to be with Jesus, not just throughout this life, but for all eternity. That's what we want. That's what salvation is. And so Jesus puts it this way in verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now we've seen it before. Here it is again. John's given us a whoever. Whoever comes, I will never cast out. Now, do you see the logic here that Jesus is giving to us in verse 37? If you want to memorize a verse this week, John 6, 37 is a good place to start. Jesus is saying, the Father gives a people to the Son. And all that He gives will come to the Son. And all who come to the Son, which is the same as all who have been given... The Son will keep forever. It's a golden chain, if you will, with apologies to Romans 8. The Father gives, the people come, and Jesus keeps. Whoever comes is welcome with Jesus. He will not throw you out. He will not reject you. He will not look down on you. There is no possibility in what Jesus is saying for you to come to Jesus having been given by the Father. Why? Because otherwise you wouldn't come. That you come to Jesus and Jesus says, mm, not so much. I've already got my quota of people from this state or this country or this age. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do or what you've done. If you come to Jesus... He will never cast you out. And that makes sense because all who come are the gift of the Father to the Son. Why would the Son reject such a gift? Why would the Son reject the gift of the Father? You know, this year, or this time of year rather, is gift-giving time, isn't it? You know, for some of you, may, you may have gift-giving time in your families on Christmas Day. When Maybe in your families, when my children were younger, they would wake up as early as possible when, before the day had broken, and they would come to me and say, you know, Dad, technically it's after midnight, it's Christmas Day. Let's open the gifts. Perhaps some of you have a tradition of opening your gifts on Christmas Eve. Still, perhaps others of you have been giving gifts all week. Maybe it's a whole month of gift giving with friends and relatives and neighbors and you're giving gifts. And inevitably what will happen is you will get a gift that is not perfect. You will get a gift that you would not have gone out and bought. Even if someone gave you the money to buy it. Right? You know those kinds of gifts when you open it up and you go, Oh, that certainly is an interesting sweater. Oh, yes, I really enjoy that car, toy, book, etc. But I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had the experience of getting one of those, let's just say less than thrilling gifts, but you got it from someone who is very dear to you? 
a spouse, a parent, a child, that you don't take that gift and go, oh, I don't like it so much, it's going in the garbage. Do you? No, you will keep it. You will treasure it. You will even, dare I say, pretend to love it every moment of the day. Not because of the gift, why? But because of the giver. That's a picture of what we have here with the Father and the Son. You see, the Father gives a people to the Son. How could the Son reject that gift? This is, in a sense, what we call the doctrine of irresistible grace. If we've gone from election to now irresistible grace, this takes the perspective for us. See, we tend to view irresistible grace through the lens of how it takes away our rights. It's God's grace that we can't resist, and we somehow want to theoretically be able to resist God's grace. I still, for the life of me, can't understand that, why people want the right to go to hell. Why people want the right to have eternal damnation. Why people want the right to be separated from God forever. But far be it from that, that's how we tend to view irresistible grace. But Jesus is actually describing irresistible grace from the divine perspective. That is, it's the Father's loving gift to the Son of a people to be saved from sin and death. It's a gift that Jesus cannot resist. He cannot reject. He will receive and he will keep. He will never grow tired of that gift. He will never stop blessing that gift. He will never stop working to make that gift more and more into his own image. Do you see how Jesus should have rejected you? How Jesus is holy, perfect, the Savior who needs nothing. He should have looked down on helpless sinners who constantly fail and fall down and rejected them. And yet, that is not the story of the Bible. Jesus came to earth, he tells us, to do the Father's will and to receive the gift of sinners like you and me. What wonder is that? That is the wonder of Christmas. Even more than God walking among us. Do you see it? Because if you do, then run to Jesus. You know he will never cast you out. He has told us that. And Jesus will never cast anyone out because of who he is. You see, it's important for us to see that Jesus keeps those who come even to the last day, he tells us in verse 39. Not because of the value of those who are given. He keeps them because he is faithful and obedient. Look with me at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That is the story of Christmas. Jesus came to earth not because we are worthy of saving. He came to do the Father's will. And the Father's will is that Jesus lose nothing 
nothing that the Father has given. And so once again we see that salvation doesn't depend on us, but on God. It's not up to you to keep yourself with Jesus by your effort. That's exhausting. That's discouraging. That's the place of despair. Because we all have been in the place where we know we've fallen short, where we've treated someone badly, where we've forgotten to do what we need to do, where we've blasphemed God, where we've ignored God, where we've tried to hide from God. We all have that in our lives. But you see, it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. Jesus has you. He is the one who keeps you. If you've come to Jesus, you have been given. Verse 37, there's no getting away from it. The language couldn't be clearer. If you've come, you've been given, and Jesus will never lose you. He will never cast you out. He will lose nothing. And the language that Jesus uses here is very intense. So, just a minor Greek lesson here to help you. In verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, we in English have something called a double negative. When we say, there's nobody that knows nothing, we actually mean the opposite. Right? Two negatives cancel. It means there are people who know something. Right? That's not how Greek works. Greek negatives pile on top of each other. And they become more intense. And so, um, if someone were willing to let me and give me the, the liberty and the license, I might tweak this translation to say, and whoever comes to me, I will no way, no how, cast out. Jesus is piling no's on top of each other. He wants you to hear that there's no possibility of being cast out or being lost. He's making it very clear. Now, this doesn't mean that we can be flippant about our salvation. Because you can't say that you've come to Jesus and then live like you haven't. I mean, I can say a lot of things. I can say I built the Eiffel Tower. I can say that I'm in Nairobi right now. That doesn't make it true. You see, we have to come to Jesus. Not just say we come to Jesus. If you want to know if you have been given by the Father, do not probe into the depths before time. Do not wonder if you have been elect and to try to find evidence of election in your life. Do you want to know if you've been given? It's simple. Come. That's what you do. And if you want to know if you're being kept by Jesus, it's also simple. Stay close to Jesus. That's how you know. You see, these actions, these things that we do, are not to earn merit with God. We don't obey God so that God will then love us and save us. Jesus has been telling us this in this passage. Before you could do anything, the Father gave the believers in Jesus to Jesus as a gift. You didn't even have the opportunity to do anything. 
But the reason why we obey is for our benefit. So that we can assure ourselves. So that we can have evidence that what Jesus says is true of us. That we're part of the all. That we're part of the given. That we're the ones who have come. That we're the ones being kept. And the way we assure ourselves of that is we act like people who have come to Jesus. And are being kept by Jesus. It's for our benefit. Not God's. Let me see if I can conclude this with an illustration that you'll understand. Back in the olden days, before Amazon and phones, when you had to buy Christmas presents, you had to go in this place called a mall. Now, try to picture this in your mind. A very large structure, and because it's Christmas season, it's insane. Cars are moving in and out of the parking lot, honking, stealing each other's spaces, You get a spot, you walk the 2.3 miles to the door, you get in the mall, you're there, people are all over the place, they're they're spilling out of stores, you try to fight your way into a store to find a pair of pants or a shirt or a toy or something, people are elbowing you, it's just a mad scene. And imagine now you are going there with your five-year-old. Now, a parent's worst nightmare in those days was to lose track of their small children. The worst thing in the world was that you would lose your child. The second worst thing of the world is they would get on the intercom and shame you to all of them all, say, will Mr. Smith please come to the front desk? Your son is here. And you had to do that walk of shame. Yes, I lost my kid. Yes, I'm sorry. And you would go. So what did you do? You would, if you're anything like me, you would say to your five-year-old, hold my hand. Right? Now, I want to ask you a question. Did your five-year-old stay with you because they held your hand? If you answer yes, you're not very smart. Because that's not how you keep your five-year-old. Your five-year-old will hold your hand, but the reason why your five-year-old is kept is because you are holding their hand. That's the important part. And you're not letting go. And you're able to keep the hand. Five-year-old hands are slippery, they are whiny, they they're, they're get tired, they let go. And so oftentimes, as a parent, you don't even get to hold a hand. Often you're holding wrist because you're just like locked on. You're going nowhere, right? Now, that's a funny example, but that's how I want you to see God and us. You don't need to hold God's hand. Now, I'm going to tell you hold God's hand, but it doesn't depend on you. You shouldn't lose a moment's sleep about whether you can hold on to God's hand or not. Because God tells us here, Jesus tells us, none will be lost. No one will be lost. And he tells us, that's a promise I have made to the Father. Your safety depends on Jesus. You see, your salvation is tied up in Jesus's faithfulness, and obedience. Stop and think about that for a moment. That's an obedience that went to the cross. That's an obedience that died a shameful death. That's an obedience 
that had the Father's face turn away. That's an obedience that was in the grave for three days. That's an obedience that rose again to declare with power and glory, it is finished. What a blessing. Does that give you great confidence? It should. That's why Jesus tells us this. Salvation begins and ends with God. The Father gives a people to the Son. And the Son keeps them forever. Even to the last day. This is a reason to rejoice. You are as safe in Jesus as He is faithful. The weakest faith is as strong as its object. You don't need to say to me, but pastor, I have my doubts. And I wonder about certain things in the Bible. And you don't know what I do when I'm not around you. And you haven't seen me at my worst. And you haven't. No, I haven't. But I know that it doesn't depend on you and your weak faith. It depends upon Jesus. He's the object of your faith. And the weakest faith has the same object as the strongest faith. That's why we call these teachings the doctrines of grace. Jesus' obedience to the Father ensures your salvation. It is by grace you have been saved. And that is not of your own doing, so that no one may boast. The will of the Father is that you belong to Jesus and will never be lost. Next time, we come back to this passage. We'll see how that's accomplished. That the will of the Father is that you believe upon the Son. But salvation begins with God and His promise. Lay hold of that promise now. Come to Jesus. You will not be disappointed. You will not be cast out. You will never be lost. Let's pray.